When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. If you're in Croatia, I'm sure you're very well. Congratulations to you. You are in a World Cup final against France. What an amazing achievement for a country, I guess, with a population more or less the size of Ireland. And, you know, we are not anywhere near getting into a World Cup final, nor do we produce the kind of international teams that do well on a on a consistent basis. So there's a lesson there for somebody in Ireland, Martin O'Neill. How about that, Martin? What about that? Where does that leave you? Nowhere. That's where it leaves you. Roy Keane, what about you? Sitting there, scrapping with Ian Wright on ITV. Maybe you need to look at yourself and your methods and the Irish teams that you're part of as assistant manager. Okay, maybe you have to take stock and say, "Um, the coaching isn't working, what else can I do? How about terror? How about terrorising the Ireland players into being better than they are? I'm not saying they should kidnap the families and threaten them with violence and torture and playing that Maroon 5 ad at them for 23 hours a day and for the other hour of the day. They have to wrestle their meagre provisions from a bear. A man will run harder and faster and stronger and pass the ball better and score more goals and defend more stoutly. But no, no, the Irish coaches just sit there on TV, bickering and fighting with other people. Frankly, they are a disgrace. But anyway, well done to Croatia. Hard luck to England. I know England got very caught up in World Cup fever. We're going to talk about that now in a couple of minutes with a a couple of English men here on the podcast. You know, I've seen a lot of cynicism about it and a lot of people saying, well, they never played anyone good and as soon as they played someone good, they went out. And yeah, maybe so. But is it not still exciting? Does it detract in any way from the experience of almost getting to a World Cup final or having a World Cup final within your reach? I don't think so. What do you want, to win the World Cup and also get a second World Cup? The World Cup of kudos because you beat better teams on the way to winning the World Cup? What a bag of shit. So if you're an England fan and you got swept away and caught up with excitement, fair fucking play. Because I can guarantee you that had something similar happened in this country, people would have been going out of their fucking minds. I remember Italia 90 when Ireland got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. This, the uh, the round of 16 game that we played against Romania. I can't remember exactly why I missed the start of that game. It could have been to do with exams. Like I was doing my final exams, my leaving cert exams. 
and the game started at a particular time and it, it coincided with the exam and I missed maybe the first half an hour of that game and I remember going to my uncle's house to watch it and walking around the streets and there was literally nobody on the streets of Dublin because everybody was at home or in a bar or something watching the game. There was no traffic. They might have even like cancelled all the buses so the bus drivers could watch the game and everyone was like mad into it and when we won people were fucking crazy they went crazy they went bananas with the drinks and the celebration and everything else and even when we lost to italy in the quarterfinal the whole of dublin city had a big party it was just a massive party that night so i think people uh, taking the piss out of england for enjoying themselves during the world cup is a load of shit really and this is coming from an irish person and you have to understand When you're Irish, I'm not going to speak for every Irish person, but there is a part of you because of history and because of everything else that England, uh, as I said to to James on the the Arscast Extra the other day, England are kind of like our our Tottenham. England are Ireland's Tottenham. If you're an Arsenal fan, that's the the kind of analogy where you don't really want England to do well because of the, the rivalry and because of the history. It's the same with Scotland and Wales, isn't it? You know, that's just part of of what makes it interesting and exciting. It's part of what would have made it amazing for England to win the World Cup because they could turn around to all their Scottish friends and Irish friends and Welsh friends and go, you know, and that's what you do. That is part and parcel of, of what you do. But to not understand or to willfully ignore the reasons why people were into it and having a great time just seems a little bit wrong to me. Speaking of, you know, Tottenham, though, and England being Ireland's Tottenham, unfortunately for England, Tottenham were England's Tottenham, too. There was a distinct Tottenham flavour to what happened in the semi-final against Croatia, I think summed up by one moment, when Raheem Sterling, who's come in for pelters from all corners during this World Cup, despite the fact I think he played pretty well, and I thought England were worse when he went off against Croatia, Raheem Sterling should have put England into the final. But it's not his fault that he didn't. It's Harry Kane's fault. Harry Kane had the opportunity just to square the ball for Raheem Sterling to tap the ball into an empty net and make it 2-0 to England. And that, I think, I think that would have been that in that game. 2-0 would have been too much for Croatia. The legs would have just been too heavy. After two games, which went to extra time and penalties, it would have been too much. 2-0 down, they would, have, they would have just struggled in a big, big way. Instead, Kane went for goal. The keeper made a save. It was greedy. Even if you want to say, oh, he's a striker and he scores goals all the time. And when you're a striker in that position, you, you take the shot on goal. But I can think of strikers who played for us down the years, Thierry Henry, for example, or Dennis Bergkamp, who in that position would have been aware that there was a man there who would have had a tap-in if you just play a simple six-yard pass square across the box. That's that. England are in the final. I'm sure Kane won't care, though. He'll get the golden boot for the World Cup and think it's some kind of an achievement because that's the way it works when you're a Tottenham player. You think individual awards are more important than the team because they're the only ones you win. But if he had been thinking of the team, if he had been thinking of the greater good rather than the Harry Kane good... England will be playing on Sunday and not in the ludicrous third, fourth place playoff on Saturday against Belgium again. 
How annoying is that? Danny Welbeck might play in that game, though, so uh, maybe there's a, a little bit of interest in that. Anyway, let's talk a little bit more about the World Cup, and let's talk about what's been a busy week for Arsenal as well, because we've made two signings. Lucas Torreira has signed for uh, 30 million euros from Sampdoria. Uh, not really a well-kept secret, that. We all knew that was going to go through, but the surprise signing is Matteo Guendouzi from Lorient, a kind of sideshow bob-haired midfielder. We were linked with David Luiz. And we were linked with Yassine Adli. And we were linked with Marouane Fellaini. The common denominator there is big, fuzzy, curly hair. Is that something that Unai Emery really likes? Maybe that's Unai Emery's football fetish. Big, sideshow bob hair. But anyway, those two guys have come in. We're going to talk about that and more, uh, including the World Cup. Uh, first with Andrew Allen. Hello. Hey there. And Tim Stillman. Hello there. Hello there. Can I ask you both, as a stout yeoman of England, uh, how you're feeling about it not coming home? Tim? <laughs> um, yeah, so surprisingly, I was a little bit more downcast um, about the result yesterday than I thought I would be. I watched it with um, a lot of friends, none of whom are Arsenal fans, some of whom aren't really even football fans. And it, it felt like this fairly momentous occasion where they're about... 20 of us watching it together, um, you know, in a, in a setting that that, that just seems so unlikely. Um, and and I, I really made a conscious effort to try and breathe it all in um, because it might not happen again for, for quite a long time, quite frankly. But, um, yeah, we, we were a little bit sad at the final whistle. And then one of my friends kind of just broke the silence um, and he just said, I really enjoyed that, um, you know, referring to the whole tournament. So... Yeah, it's it's kind of bittersweet, but um, it's 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 been nice actually. Um, getting uh, feeling like I could get behind um, this England team and and getting sucked in. It's been it's been good fun. Andrew, have have you enjoyed it? I know you said to me you stayed away from some of the the more um, mad parts of the way games are being uh, experienced in England with, with beer going everywhere. But um, you know, as as an English man, were you caught up in it? Were you were you there for it? Well, I mean, as a as a half Irish, half Cypriot British passport holder, <laughs> uh, who has lived in England his entire life, uh, yeah, no, I, I liked him. I just I really enjoyed it. What I really enjoyed, I guess, was kind of, I think Tim even remarked on this on Twitter earlier. Was just um, the fact that the whole country seemed to sort of want to pull together in the same direction of, around something which wasn't particularly controversial you know it was just something that you could kind of go out and enjoy and I watched most of the games with people that I don't usually watch football with I kind of made an effort to kind of see different groups of friends we would go around each other's houses we'd watch it we'd have a few beers just really enjoy it that my biggest sadness is is kind of selfish which is it would have been really nice to have one last kind of big party on Sunday um I, I at no point did I really ever start to believe that England were good enough to win it. Um, you know, they, they had a nice little run and I think their limitations in the end kind of showed up last night. But it was fun, really fun. And, you know, the country's been so divided over so many different things. And I know a lot of people have pointed this out, but with the sun shining and, you know, an opportunity to kind of hang out, it's been great fun. Yeah. Tim, I mean, the people talk about the... The quality of the football, and before we we uh, start talking here, I just did a bit in the intro about how, like, if this had happened in Ireland, the place would be going absolutely fucking mental with enjoyment yeah. and excitement, uh, regardless of how Ireland were playing. And I can 
pretty much guarantee you that even if Ars- uh, Ireland, Arsenal, Ireland were to get to a World Cup semi-final, it wouldn't be playing the most scintillating, beautiful football that yeah. anybody has ever seen. I mean, we got to a quarterfinal in 1990 with Jack Charlton playing Jack Charlton football, but nobody really mm. gave a fuck about how we were playing. It was just about what we were doing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I think, um, I, I kind of said before the tournament, actually, I, I, I quietly enthused by what Gareth Southgate's been doing with this England team. I think he's played it very smart. He knows what he's got and he knows what he hasn't got. What he hasn't got is a midfield. So he's devised um, a style of play that doesn't really rely on a midfield that much. Um, And I was kind of quietly impressed over the last year or so um, over what he did. And I actually fully expected England to get to the quarterfinals just because because for the first time in a long time, I saw evidence of an actual plan, of a style of play and something that the players believed in and that once their backs were against the wall, something they could fall back on. Um, perhaps a lot of the things that Arsenal lacked last season, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, th- I, I think, you know, listen, everyone knows they didn't create an awful lot from open play and et cetera, et cetera. And everyone knows they lost to really, that they beat who they should have beat and they lost to who they really should have lost to um, in the end. But, you know, I think they were quite smart to try and maximise set pieces. For example, they knew they didn't have many creative players, so they worked hard on getting, you know, that, that little kind of competitive edge from set pieces. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't really, I, I think it's it's a little bit, um, a symptom of this kind of social media you must not enjoy anything and we must tell you exactly why you shouldn't enjoy this thing that you're enjoying because I mean to be honest I, even with Arsenal style of play doesn't really bother me that much it's not something that hugely preoccupies me I, I don't think it's what I get out of out of watching football so I'm not sure I even noticed that England were not the most aesthetically pleasing team to watch Oh, I noticed that. I mean, I, I watched it, I, <laughs> course, yeah. I watched all their games, um, so it was pretty hard to escape. But there is something to be said for that, isn't there? I mean, you know, uh, playing beautiful football and winning is amazing. But how many times, Andrew, have we said over the years, you know, I might trade a little bit of our flair and our uh, attacking instinct for a bit more organization, a bit more functionality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... As Tim said, you can't really blame Southgate for making use of the squad the way he did. For me, there was kind of a lot of Greece winning the Euros in 2004 about this England team. You know, they kind of, they were organised. They had a really great team spirit. They took advantage of, you know, set set pieces. Um, in that instance, obviously, Greece went all the way and it was ridiculously unexpected. Um, but yeah, I mean... If, if Unai Enemery turns up in the first couple of days of training and decides that he wants to put an emphasis on set pieces after years and years and years of us not necessarily kind of, I don't know whether I'm being harsh on Arsene here, but maybe not making a priority of kind of real tactically organised set piece attacking scenarios, mm. you know, good for him. I'd be up for that. I think it's about finding a balance. And, um, you know, as Tim said, England really sort of lacked a, that amazing creative penetrating kind of Luka Modric-esque player that can kind of create something out of nothing but also dictate the tempo all the time and kind of is a linchpin at all times you know when you look at uh, Henderson who obviously had a very important part to play uh, in the team and he's he's just not that really and and Dyer was similar when he was called upon Um, Ali just didn't seem to kind of get out of 
third gear i didn't think and mm. um you know but it was it was an enjoyable tournament you know when a, when a team who goes to a tournament and you don't expect anything of them starts to sort of change the narrative a little bit you can get caught up in it and, and sometimes you just you want to get caught up in it because even if you know it's not going to end in a joyful kind of moment it's 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 better to experience it yeah i agree and look i think we should point out that nobody in greece uh, at all enjoyed winning the euros in 2004 because of the <laughs> manner in which in which they played it was uh, it's actually a shame on the country now they don't even mention <laughs> it anymore uh, I, I, have, I have to say as well i think just quickly um the, the other reason southgate was smart to go for set pieces i, I don't get the sense that england have done this before this tournament and on one hand, it was a bit of a surprise. And obviously, a World Cup is very compressed. And if you spring something in the World Cup, it's, you know, other teams haven't got a lot of time to adjust to that. But I also think the reason he made a priority of it was because of VAR. Um, I think, you know, there was a little bit of talk before the tournament about how VAR might influence um, defending at set pieces and that it might actually become easier to score from them uh, when defenders are under the microscope. And I think he was quite clever um, to go for that. Do you think that was a, a deliberate decision based on, on VAR? It, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a factor. Right. I mean, the fact that he also had a gigantic uh, yeah. aerial monster like Harry Maguire <laughs> is, is pretty good. It, it struck me at some point, you know, watching England uh, in, in the semifinal against Croatia, that they're kind of like um, a, a sort of a nice Wimbledon in a way. Yeah. That, that's exactly how I've... De- well, not so much nice, but that's exactly how I've described Well, I mean, Tottenham. not not com- absolute <laughs> co- dirty cons like Wimbledon were. Just, no, I mean, no, no, nice no. As in, but, you know. but I I think um, Spurs um, are very Wimbledon um, in that. Uh, they're not quite as, um, as brassic um, as Wimbledon were. But when you watch Spurs play, they don't, they don't do intricate build-up play. They get the ball into areas where you don't want to play and they mm. get it forward quickly. Look at um, Vertonghen and Alderweireld's long pass numbers. They are quick. They they get it into your defence and they put you under pressure. And uh, I think that's what England tried to do to a degree as well. Mm. Um, Andrew, the the final, we have France versus Croatia in the final. It's very difficult to see Croatia coping with three games that went to extra time, 120 minutes, two of them went to penalties. There's a lot spent in those extra 30 minutes at the end of every game there's fatigue there's just natural wear and tear of muscles and everything else but there's also a huge amount and you know we talk about mental strength or whatever whatever else it is actually a thing as much as people want to make a joke out of it to to concentrate and to stay focused and to stay organized you know when you're when your body is telling you fuck this shit you're tired, lie down, have a lie down. You've got to keep going. You've got to make the runs. You've got to defend. You've got to do all that kind of stuff. It is really, really energy sapping. It would be extraordinary to me anyway if they were able to overcome that against a France side that I'm not going to say they had an easy ride to the final, but physically they had an easier uh, path to, to the final game. Yeah, I, I I agree. You don't want Luka Modric to hear you say that because he'll probably be chasing you down to Dublin and going after you. Um, <laughs> Bring it but, on, uh, he's only little. Yeah. Fuck him. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Um, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Although at the same time, I mean, the games come so quick and fast. The high that 
Croatia must be on. I mean, they're so aware that their entire country. I mean, if you think it's mad here or mad in, I mean, hypothetically mad in Dublin, if um, if Ireland had done this, it is absolutely mad in Croatia as well. Mm. I've got a, a very close Croatian friend who's who's over here, but he was over in Croatia for the earlier rounds, and he said the whole country is just completely up for this. And really, when you look at their pedigree it's amazing for a country which really hasn't been a country for very long to have you know been in a semi-final in 98 and now a final you know coming up on sunday it's an incredible achievement um i think you know i my head says france but my heart kind of now sort of turns a bit to croatia because i just love to see such an underdog kind of win it at this point um then they're, they're not the prettiest team to to watch, but they've also got some really interesting qualities. Obviously, Modric and Rakitic, but I really like Perisic. I really yeah. like Rebic. Mandzukic is kind of a likable character in some respects. So I kind of you know best of luck to them. I like how Mandzukic looks like a guy who would pick you up at the airport in a town car, but is actually really good at football as well. <laughs> He's just- he might- he might well do that when he retires. Yeah, yeah. Tim, how do you see the how do you see the final going? Um, I, I think it'll be a really, really close, very, very tight game. Um, I actually see it going a little bit like the England-Croatia game did, but probably in France's favour, where Croatia and England was quite tight, but really Croatia just had one or two more of those players who've been at the business end of you know Champions League league titles getting over the line and mm. things like that Croatia just had a little bit more of that than England I, I think on this occasion France have just got a little bit more of that than Croatia and um, I, I know the Croatian players were as Andrew said quite upset about um, the quite phenomenal um, comment that they might be a bit tired after playing extra time <laughs> but you know that's that's three lots of um, 30 minutes that's an extra game yeah um they've played now um and you know i i think the adrenaline will probably carry them through to a certain point but if this one goes to extra time which i th- which i think it it could um it's not unlikely you know i really think that's a lot of punishment um at that point and particularly i think france are just slightly stronger i expect france to take it by the odd goal yeah, they've got a bit more, maybe a bit more depth in the squad as well, France, mm. from an attacking point of view, if they want to add some uh, yeah. some fresh legs against uh, heavy Croatian le- uh, legs. But look, it, it promises to be a very interesting final. So um, while we're sort of on the World Cup thing, in a way, we made one of our most interesting and exciting signings. I think the most interesting and exciting signing. Uh, I'll stick with you, Tim, initially on mm. this. Lucas Torreira from Sampdoria, fee of around £30 million to be paid over the course of three years, fairly fairly standard stuff. Uh, 22-year-old, looks like he has qualities that the Arsenal midfield have been missing for a little while. We've, we've sort of been, we've been missing a number six for, mm. for quite some time. And he yep. appears to be a number six in a squad which just doesn't, doesn't have one. Yeah, absolutely. He kind of looks, um, in, and I've really only seen him at this World Cup yeah. because with uh, Uruguay, he's, he'd barely played for them um, before this World Cup. He wasn't even in the squad for most of the qualifying. So um, I, this has really been my first look at him. But he, he kind of looks like a cockerland that can pass um, to me. You know, <laughs> he's got that that kind of that same build that, um, you know, Cockerland was a very good tackler, um, for example. He, he looks to me like he's got that quite aggressive but at the same time quite controlled style 
um, but he can move the ball um, a bit as well. And, and yeah, th- this this is the sort of signing where you think that Sven Mislintat um, is making his money, uh, really, because a lot of the others have been, you know, you don't need um, diamond eyes, really, to <laughs> recruit to recruit a lot of what we've recruited this summer. Um, but but this, this one is, this is the sort of profile of player that really Arsenal, you'd hope, once we're back where we should be, is exactly what we should be looking at. Guys whose value is rising, whose prominence is rising. You know, he's fought his way into the starting eleven of the of the Uruguay team very, very quickly. He's, you know, his star's on the rise, as it were. Um, and it looks a really interesting signing, not not least because, like you said, he has a lot of the qualities that just haven't been present probably since we had the Coquelin-Cazorla uh, combination in midfield. Yeah, Andrew, there was a story, wasn't there, about how he he played on with terrible blisters on his feet and this is seen as some kind of uh, a sign of his character, which I get, you know, he's going to play and he doesn't want to miss any games, but maybe he's just a guy who doesn't want to ask for any help. You know, maybe that's uh, another part of his character too. Just doesn't I mean, want to. You can get really good blister plasters these days. So I mean, if he wants help, it's out there. You, you know? can. Like the compedes are amazing. Oh, mate, they're, they're the best thing. Like I revolutionary. S- swear to God, I went when we went to um, Madrid uh, for the Atletico Madrid game. Foolishly, foolishly, I, I wore a new pair of boots, and by the time I'd spent about three hours walking around Madrid, my feet were in bits. So compedes. <laughs> saved me on that trip to Madrid. I will, you know, I, I want my coffin to be made entirely out of compedes. They're amazing. Oh, if, you're, if you're listening, compede, we're, yeah, was, <laughs> we're over freebies. I was just about to say, it sounds like um, sponsorship chasing here or native marketing. No, <laughs> genuinely, it's just admiration. I promise you, I'm not that cynical. I'm not that cynical. We might have done it with the jam, but like that's a different that's a different story altogether. But, uh, you know, there is perhaps something uh, about the, uh, the character of South American players, Andrew, you know, we could be stereotyping or we could be a bit lazily stereotyping in a way, but there was a part of it, wasn't there, on the, the Arsenal website where they were talking to him about this particular uh, way that football is viewed in Uruguay. I can't remember what it's what exactly it was called, but, uh, you know, he was very keen to talk about that as part of being a footballer from that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to begin to try and pronounce exactly what it is. I'll leave that to Tim in a moment. But, I mean, he, he yeah, he, he just looks like a, a little hard fella, right? You know, he's going to run around a mm. lot. He's going to put the challenges in. You hope he's going to win those challenges. And when he wins those challenges, you hope he's going to give it to the players who are in front of him. And, like, if he's, you know, he's had a pretty rapid rise. I mean, it was only a couple of seasons ago he was playing in Serie B. And prior to that, you know, he was back in South America. And, you know, really even in Serie A, no one had really heard of him until let's say last season two seasons ago i mean he's he's really come a long way so for him i guess the biggest obstacle first and foremost is going to be settling into to life in the uk i think the fact that he's he's done a few years in in italy will stand him in good stead um there's a lot of kind of spanish speakers in the squad obviously including a, a manager so I don't think there should be any problems on on that front, um, but it's yeah I'm, I'm I'm excited to see it. I mean I'm I, it kind of opens up the big question as to how we set up the midfield now I guess, and that's something we'll probably get our first hint about on Saturday. 
Yeah, I mean, we're playing Boreham Wood. Whether or not uh, Unai Emery is going to pick the same kind of formation as he's going to all season, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I suspect he probably will, Tim, that he'll want to, to develop the team with the formation he wants to play, the system that he wants to play. And when we get to our first game of the season or into the first weeks of the season, we'll start to see who he views as his first choice players. But it does seem like Torreira is going to come in and if not anchor the mid field on his own behind two other central midfield players he could certainly be part of a, a midfield too um mm. the partner remains to be seen but um i i suppose that's part of what makes this upcoming season so interesting is that we don't really know what's going to happen and how it's going to happen yeah indeed um I, I did an article about this a couple of weeks ago you know focusing on the attackers but you could just as easily say about the midfielders Basically, a couple of quite big players are going to miss out. And that's not to say they're going to miss out in every single game. Mm. But guys who expect to play every week are going to be, you know, become rotation options, which is which is very, very interesting. Um, it's it's on the face of it very good for Arsenal. It promotes competition. I have, I have a slight worry that perhaps um, some of these players would be OK with being a rotation option at an absolute elite club, whereas at Arsenal they might think, I could probably make a lateral move and get first-team football. I, I still think someone might lose out in there. Mm. But um, it, it, pre-season, it just absolutely... Fa- I'm, I'm going to Boreham Wood on Saturday, having you know, barely even watched a pre-season friendly in the last five or six years. I, I kind of believe quite strongly that they shouldn't be... Um, they shouldn't be televised or broadcast or anything like that. And quite frankly, I don't watch them when I'm sitting on my ass with nothing else to do. I, yeah. I don't think I'd watch them in my back garden, but I'm going to watch them all uh, this summer because I'm completely fascinated by how he's going to set the team up just from a formation standpoint, because it seems like there are like several options, but none of them are, are completely convincing me. I, you know, he, he could go with a midfield diamond, um, I, I think that might be an interesting uh, option, but there, there's just any number of ways that he can set all of this up. And I really don't have like a strong opinion about what he's going to do, which makes obviously makes the season very exciting. But it's actually making me quite excited about preseason as well. I'm looking forward just to seeing the formation as yeah. much as anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody the other day who told me they are being worked very, very hard in training. Mm. And I don't want to go down the road of Arsene Wenger never worked his players hard or anything like that. We've, you know, um, we don't need that. But he is really, really um, stressing the need to them uh, to to work hard and to get the ball back quickly and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And they're doing double sessions and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it augurs well from from that point of view that if we are going to change everything everything that's around the club from the, the head coach to the manager to the recruitment to the academy and everything else, you know, they, they've got to change something with the training as well because the guys are used to what they're used to and, and what mm. they've been used to under Arsene Wenger. And shaking them out of their comfort zone, I think, is a part of what Unai Emery has got to do to to what's the word I'm looking for here to sort of just um, remind them or show them who exactly is boss. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the messages, you know, for for um, obvious reasons, language, um, you know, and, and just in the interests of his own team, he's played his cards quite close to his chest so far, but. 
the the one message that's really come through is that you know Arsenal are going to be a bit more of a pressing team that they're going to you know get into opponents high up the pitch um and obviously that's physically incredibly demanding so you know i to my knowledge double sessions are, are completely new um at arsenal I, I don't think arsene wenger ever did that and you know in the in the q and a a few weeks ago you know I, I spoke about this the last time i was on you know he really really emphasized um i only promise the fans one thing that this team will work hard yeah. um and i think there's going to be a real emphasis on on that kind of high press that that I think will take a season um, or so because you know you look at Pochettino at Spurs when he brought that in, Klopp at Liverpool when he brought that in, it didn't yield instant results. But kind of the next season, they they really really kind of the players started to believe in it and really kind of bought into it. And uh, yeah, and, and obviously physically getting them in the shape to do that um, in pre-season is going to be a huge thing. And he's he's quite fortunate in that. Um, he's got most of the squad there for the whole pre-season, which is quite unique um, for yeah. a World Cup. But but also what you, what you can say is perhaps, you know, he was talking about Ramsey's contract today and he kind of said, you know, not quite nothing to do with me, but yeah, I want him to stay. And, and that's about the limit of my involvement in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when perhaps he's got the time to do double sessions because he's not in his office making phone calls all the time. Maybe I'm being unfair there, but yeah, that's something to think about. Yeah, that's true. Never really thought about it like that. I mean, Andrew, while we're talking about Aaron Ramsey, it is the the last, well, one of the uh, last things for for the club to sort out. And you know, as Emery has pointed out, it's he said very clearly, it's up to Ivan and Raúl and Sven to. To uh, to make this happen, he wants Ramsey to stay. He's an important player for him, and uh, you know it's interesting, isn't it, to see uh, a manager or a head coach not so much wash his hands of that kind of thing, but to to hand it over to the executive committee at the club, who are now, as everybody can see, fully responsible for these things. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I guess for him, it's not something unusual, right? I mean, he had that situation at PSG. I don't know what his circumstances were at, were at Sevilla, but I mean, it, it must be great for him to be able to completely just like focus on being a coach and putting the players who he has at his disposal in any given training session through the through the ringer. Um, as for what will happen with Ramsey, I mean. He seems pretty happy. I mean, there were quotes that came out when he played when Wales played Mexico just at the end of the well, it was a, a sort of pre World Cup international friendly, wasn't it? And he sounded pretty kind of excited and pumped to get back to to meet Emery and to to, to have a taste of of life under him. And then he was the first one on social media to sort of say back at it when he was you know returning for pre season. So the the underlying vibes sound like he's a bloke who'd quite happily stay, but obviously money talks. And we, we know that there would be plenty of clubs out there who'd probably offer to, to, to better an Arsenal contract. So he needs to sort of be happy with the circumstances, be happy with the money and, uh, and want, and want to stay, I guess. I, yeah, I, I, I'm quietly confident that he will stay. Um, I don't think the, the club really should quibble too much over small amounts if there's a huge difference between what Ramsey's asking for and what the club are willing to pay then obviously it becomes a it becomes an issue but yeah. I, I can't I can't imagine he's thinking he's going to get a Mesut Ozil contract 
he might think I'm going to get myself a, a Mkhitaryan or an Aubameyang contract, which in itself would double his money, which is you know crazy, really. But it it is what it is. Um, and you know, I see him as being a long-term potential club captain. You know, he's an integral part of our midfield, has been for a long time. And mm. um, you know, I I I'd probably go out of our way to make sure he's happy. Yeah, Tim, I know that he has been presented with offers already. Mm. He's turned down offers already. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I guess it's about how far Arsenal are willing to go to keep him and at what point they decide, well, if it's not going to happen, what are they going to do? Now, I'm also told that they are going to make him a big, big offer, whether it's been made already or it's imminent, I'm not 100% sure. And there could be the lure of something more than just uh, a big wage packet with that as well. So... Uh, it is a, a situation which requires clarity sooner rather than later, though. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly with the kind of truncated um, transfer window. I was thinking this actually about um, Welbeck as well the other day. You know, he's probably not going to come back till Col- to Colney until about a couple of days before the window closes. So how are they going to deal with that? Um, obviously, this is this is a bit more important, um, I think. I think I, I've pretty much always been of the opinion that he would go. Um, I've kind of softened on that stance just because usually you'd hear by now of of maybe some transfer rumours or something. And that there's been nothing to that effect. There's been nothing that's come or that looks like it's come from, quote unquote, the Ramsey camp. Um, there's been none of this or they're not happy with the offer or, or they've got this interest or anything like that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it sounds like um, he'd quite like to stay. And they're just they're just trying to flush out that big offer. Mm. I, I think maybe the problem we've given ourselves as well is the way the Alexis situation was handled, um, and whether in the minds of quote unquote the Ramsey camp that set a precedent, and they think well okay maybe we can hang on till January, and and you know obviously we ended up selling Sanchez, but off the back of that we ended up absolutely over a barrel with Mesut Ozil we had to basically give him whatever he wanted because we couldn't lose them both in one window Mm. so whether we've kind of set a precedent that we really have to turn around with this situation yeah um I you know I don't know but there's not much time I mean it's less than a month really to sort this but usually when the players come back you start to hear of some murmurings but um, you know, if you're, you're saying that they're about to prepare a big offer, um, that that kind of sounds like a take it or leave it. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Um, which which I think, you know, would be sensible. And I, I've written before as much as I really, really like and um, really always rated Aaron Ramsey. I think it's a loss we could absorb, but um, we would need clarity quickly. Um, because we would need to use the money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I, I would prefer him to stay. But if he isn't going to sign, I don't think we have any other choice because, mm. you know, I like Mesut Ozil as well, but I'm not sure that the deal that we gave to Mesut Ozil was good value, you know, no. uh, for, in terms of what we get from him. And that's not to say he doesn't produce or anything like that. It's just because of the circumstances, you could liken it to the one that Theo Walcott got. Yeah. A few years ago when he uh, he was in a similar situation and in January he signed a deal to make him more or less the highest paid player at the club, I think. So, mm. you know, it, the circumstances play a part in in the contract situations. And, you know, if uh, 
if Ramsey isn't going to sign, maybe we got to bite the bullet. But it will depend, I think, on on who else uh, might be after him. Andrew, there was another midfield signing as well. Um, you know, I I I really like the idea that we've got a new head coach. You've got a new head of recruitment. You've got a new director of football. We've got a chief executive who's becoming more and more hands-on. We've got all these changes happening, but all of a sudden Arsenal are linked with a young French midfielder from Ligue 2. <laughs> it's like we can't, it's, it's part of the club's DNA. It's, uh, it's quite funny to see uh, Matteo uh, Guendouzi come into the club um, in those circumstances, I mean, clearly a player they have high hopes for, but just in terms of the age profile and how it ties in with everything that came in the previous 20 years, it's quite amusing. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, at the same time, though, I guess Gazidis kind of went out of his way to preach a level of continuity when it came to kind of an emphasis on youth. And then the first thing we went and did was get a free signing in Licksteiner, who's 33, <laughs> 34. Socrates, who's pretty old. Um, you know, basically, we, we've gone and bought a whole load of guys who are around about 29. And I feel like this is a kind of balancing uh, mm. transfer. You know, we've done a bit of experience now. Let's also bring someone in. We were obviously looking at uh, Yassine Adli, the PSG guy. And I imagine if we'd got him, this transfer would not have really been on the radar. It's a case of like, well, he's yeah. off the list, so we'll go to the next one. Um, but I, I, I know nothing about him. I haven't even watched a YouTube uh, highlights package of him yet. What? Um, what? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm saving myself for when the World Cup ends. There's going to be a bit of a gap. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, he, he has kind of crazy hair. I say crazy hair. He has, you know. More hair, hair than any of us. Is that what you're trying to say? More hair he has than more hair than I have, yeah. Um, he, you know, he, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, he's one of these guys, you kind of think, well, he's 19 years old and he's going to be playing in the centre of midfield technically in a, in, a, in a Premier League game. Is he going to be able to handle it? We'll have to wait and see. We've seen so many young players, whether they're French or, or other nationalities, kind of burst into the Arsenal setup. I think of players like, let's say, the Jeff, who you mm. kind of you're desperately hoping will go on and 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 go to the next level. And I think this guy is faced with that similar challenge, which is he may well kind of come in, have a few good games, but it's really about being able to sustain a place and 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 go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, it's interesting, you know. He'll play, I think, Tim Europa League games. <laughs> he'll play Carabao Cup games uh, initially, uh, but you know, it's it's it's. I think one of the most enjoyable things uh, of Arsene mm. Wenger's reign was seeing a young player come through and whether or not he made it in the end, we all had this, like, we all invested a little bit of our hope in a young guy and, and thought, could he be the one? Could he be the next guy? Could he be the next Fabregas, for example? And more often yeah. than not, it fails. But until it fails, um, it's usually quite fun to watch and you you... you you tend to look for the positives more than you look for the negatives, which seems to be the opposite way that we deal with football in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. These are these are really no risk signings, um, signings like this, because if they go wrong, they they don't really cost you a lot. Um, yeah. We've probably got you know a midfielder to play a couple of Europa League and Carabao Cup games for us for for chumps change. Really, I think what's interesting about the signing is. Actually, it's it's beginning to um, build a bit of a pipeline um, in midfield. So you've got Torreira, and it looks like he will be understudied by Maitland-Niles. Yeah, and then you've got Granit Xhaka, and and from everything I've I've read um, about this guy, he's he's a bit 
slightly in like the deep lying playmaker mold. So then you've got Xhaka, um, and and I suppose El Neni um, is kind of the backup to Xhaka. So you're beginning to create a bit of competition with different age profiles. So you know Maitland Niles is quite young, Torreira's a little bit older. Then you've got Xhaka, who's a senior player, El Neni behind him, um, and then you've got this guy who's a bit younger, kind of coming up the back and and probably initially after a year or so the the kind of uh, the aspiration for him will be to to get past El Nenny um and then at that point maybe he can get past Shaka and it's 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 really we're really beginning I think just beginning to to build a bit of a pipeline there in terms of the profile of midfielders yeah um that, yeah. that we've got you could say Tim you could say the same about maybe center half as well where yeah. we we have this sort of gap between like Mustafi is the man in the middle, uh, yeah. but apart from that, we've got experience in in Socrates, and we've got Koscielny when he comes back from injury. But yeah. you look at Holding and Chambers and Mavropanos; those are the guys who are the exciting ones and who hopefully can can flourish this season. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and, um, and I think I think that's quite deliberate as well. And and what's what's interesting is for obvious reasons because we're well stocked there. Uh, the area we haven't really touched on this this summer is attack, yeah. and uh, all of our attackers seem to be twenty nine, um, which well, which, like I said, is a bit younger. Yeah, 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 yeah. True, true. And um, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how how we deal with that because um, you know basically Özil, Abamyang, Mkhitaryan, they're all going to need replacing at the same time. Mm. Um, and it would be a bit of a disaster to try and do all of that in one summer. So it'll be interesting to see how we deal with that. It's not a priority for this summer, but maybe next summer and maybe January, how we start to deal with the idea that and what kind of player we go for, whether we go for some 19-year-olds and hope or some 22-year-olds and, and hope that they can build up so that we can replace them perhaps incrementally. Yeah, I mean, that's what yeah. we're looking at. Sorry, Andrew, I was just going to say that's what we're looking at, at Sven Mislintat to do to mm. to uncover, uh, you know, the next Dembele or whatever at a young age so he can come in and develop uh, at Arsenal and become the player that lots of other clubs want to buy. You know, I, I'm sort of miss... I, I sort of miss that in a way, you know? Mm. I mean, I think you raised an interesting point the other day when we were talking about the Gwen Doozy uh, signing. I think maybe you wrote it in the blog, but you were kind of saying, what does this mean for someone like Joe Willock? And, you know, Willock and, and Ketia and Reese Nelson, three players who've got a, a pretty solid first season of first-team football under their belts, haven't actually yet been technically promoted to the first-team squad. Um, and I kind of wonder what, you know, someone like Willock looking at a, a young French guy of about the same age coming into the squad thinks about that. But then, you know, also Nelson and Ketty, incredible talents, probably need a bit of time out on loan. But maybe yeah. they're part of the pipeline that, that, that Tim was talking about. Yeah, I mean, what would you do with them, Andrew? I mean, I have to say all I, three. Reese Nelson is the, the only one over whom there's a little bit of concern because he hasn't yet signed a contract. And also because maybe he's... He's the most naturally, um, most natural wide attacking player that we've got as sort of a, a winger, and we don't seem to have too many of those in the squad. So we might keep him around. But if Nelson was on a contract for another three or four years, I would loan Willock, I'd loan Enkedia, I'd loan Reese Nelson, and let them play a year of football and come back and see 
you know, where they are and where we are as a squad in terms of the players who are not necessarily on the way out, but who's, uh, as Tim says, do need to be replaced at some stage and how much closer they are to being able to do that. Yeah, I guess I think, I mean, I'd, I'd be inclined to keep at least two of the three until Christmas. And because the Europa League is such a bloated tournament and yeah. offers the opportunity against weaker sides to kind of throw guys in like they did last season, I kind of feel like there's there's actually a, a real opportunity for them to, to get another 10, 12 performances under their belt, maybe before Christmas, whether some of those are substitute performances, League Cup games and what have you. Um I, I, I still think there's room there because I feel like if one of them actually bursts in and does something really great at first team level, it could actually be the making of them because we've seen that with Alex Awobi, for example, someone who didn't really, you know, you didn't really look at him and think that he was going to be a first team star, but actually he had a nice little run, managed to establish himself, scored a couple of goals and suddenly that was it, you know, new contract, commitment, no chance of him going out on loan. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed for at least you know, and Ketia and Nelson, because I think there's real talent there, potentially. Yeah, Tim, any thoughts on that? I mean, would you keep them for the Europa League or, you know, would it be better for them to go and play a season at championship level and, you know, play regular competitive first-team football uh, away from Arsenal, you know, in an environment where perhaps, I don't mean that they're going to be coddled or anything else, but perhaps there's a bit more pressure on them to perform if they go somewhere on loan. Europa League group games, Arsenal will always have, well, you would imagine they'd have enough quality to go through. They could, mm. They've got the safety net of putting people on the bench, for example. Whereas if they go somewhere and they're expected to perform week in, week out, that's where you really see how a, a young player is going to going to develop. Yeah, I... I certainly send uh, Willock out on loan I, I think with this this signing uh, he's perhaps gone one gone down one um, in the pecking order so I'd certainly I'd certainly send him out on loan um, in Ketia I, I I think it kind of depends what we do with Lucas Perez and Danny Welbeck if um, both of those go I'd keep in Ketia if one of them stays I'd consider sending him out on loan Reese Nelson um, if he'll sign a contract as a player I'd actually keep um, mm. for, for the reasons you kind of highlighted Arsenal not only do we not have many natural wide forwards we don't have many dribblers anymore um, you know Wilshere's gone Sanchez has gone Chamberlain's gone you know Walcott sometimes kind of did that um, when he wasn't falling over the ball um, but <laughs> that, that kind of sense of being able to take a player on we, we, we really don't have that pretty much anywhere with maybe the exception of Iwobi but I, I think he does it in a slightly different way so I, I think uh, if, you know, if I were Emery, um, I'm, you know, I might have a, a chat with Reese Nelson and say, look, th this is a hole in our squad. Um, we haven't really got the money uh, to fix it this summer. So there's a big opportunity um, for you here. Um, you know, sign the contract. I'll give you uh, I'll give you the Europa League games. I'll start you. It won't be a wing back this time. You've kind of served your apprenticeship there. Yeah. Um, let's see what you can do. Um that that's probably what what I would do with him. I th I think I think he could be a player that's worth keeping around. And let's face it, he's someone we've got to woo yeah. um, a little bit because he still hasn't signed a deal. Um, I I think there could be some value and a bit of a quid pro quo there. But what's quite interesting is I think Arsenal went off the loan system a little bit. You look at like Hector Bellerin went out on loan to Watford and it was a disaster and it was a waste of time and I don't think it really added anything. And he kind of he he stopped really sending those sorts of players out on loan 
um, mm. towards the last couple of years. So obviously new thinking now. It'll be interesting to see what someone like Emery thinks of the loan system, whether that's something we revive. We'll have to wait and see. It's uh, you know another one of those things that we don't really know uh, what way he's going to do it and what way he's going to approach it. So it adds another layer of complexity and interest to, to a new season. Finally, very quickly, Andrew, I just want to ask you about this as somebody who uh, you know is part of uh, writing Arsblog News every day and the demand for content. What did you make of the uh, story on Arsenal.com where Arsenal announced Lucas Torreira and then did a story about how people reacted to the announcement? <laughs> yeah, are we just in like a giant circle here how, how we announced you reacted what about ne- what's next like we our reactions to the reaction of the reactions i mean it, it, it is getting a little bit ridiculous because not only was it kind of teasing people into making some kind of weird reaction but they even went out and basically asked people to draw pretty pictures of the boy and then put those on the website as well um look I know there's a huge desire for content and Arsenal fans come in all shapes and sizes these days. And the way that the modern media works and social media works is, is, is there's probably an audience for this and people are probably who've been included in those pieces probably feel pretty chuffed about it. And, you know, fair enough, but yeah, it's, it's, it's mad. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day you tell us that we're going to go down that angle as well. Yeah. 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 We're going to do like a, <laughs> an, a 90 minute documentary to announce a new feature on the website or something. I mean, that's where we're headed, Tim, isn't it? What's you know, what is it like some kind of a multi media, uh, interactive, immersive experience where somehow we all get a virtual reality headset and, and enjoy the, the signing of a new player at Arsenal. It's crazy. I think we've got the premise of a new Black Mirror episode yeah. here, um, yeah. to, to, to be quite honest. It, it is, yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And um, it, it's kind of, um, you know, Arsenal, you know, Arsenal's Twitter feed, like self-referential, self-referentially referring to, you know, quote-unquote Arsenal Twitter. Um, <laughs> and, you know, oh, you know, look at Arsenal Twitter tracking, like, his flights and all of this, and it's, yeah, it's it's very um, it's very dog chasing its tail, chasing the dog chasing its tail, yeah. and I, I don't really know where this all ends. But um, you know, and whatever people like and are up for, that's fine. But personally, I don't really want any part of it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I was just thinking, actually, back to the earlier in the in the in the summer when Antoine Griezmann did his announcement about staying <laughs> via a production company that was owned by Gerard Piquet. And he then had to come out and issue a denial of the fact that he knew already that Antoine Griezmann wasn't going to be joining Barcelona because his own production company had made a documentary about it. I mean, it is it is mad now. But That, that is fucking nuts. It really is. I'd forgotten <laughs> about that story. That's absolutely crazy. I think, you know, we're just going to end up... I don't know where we're going to end up. I'm not sure any of us are going to like it, though. But, uh, you know, let's, let's hope the football's good uh, between now and the time that we get there. We better leave it there. Andrew, thanks a million. Oh, thank you. And Tim, thank you very much. My pleasure as always. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much to the two guys. You can follow them on Twitter. Andrew is at A. Allen Sport. That's at A. Allen Sport. Tim is at Stilberto. And of course, you can read Tim's column on Arsblog every single week. There is actually Arsenal football this weekend. Arsenal face Boreham Wood with a stronger team, I think, than people were expecting for this game. It's normally one which is an Arsenal 11, which includes a lot of young players and fringe players and what have you. But because Unai Emery has got a lot to do in this preseason, he's got to learn a lot about these players, despite whatever dossiers he might have on all of them. He'll only get experience of them by seeing them play and seeing them in match situations. We're going to get a stronger team than many people expected on Saturday. Uh, It's interesting to see what kind of a system he's going to play, so we'll uh, touch on that on the Arsecast Extra on Monday with James. Just to give you a little heads up, if you're not already an Arsblog member on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog, you can join up right now for five euros per month. There's a brand new episode of My Arse. James has interviewed Ian Stone, writer, comedian, broadcaster, and you'll also know him, of course, as part of the Tuesday Club podcast, talking about his life and times as an Arsenal fan. There's an interview with Philippe Senderos there. There is a history podcast about the two 2001-2002 season and this week this week in my studio I sat down with somebody who I think can rightly be called an Arsenal legend the word legend is bandied around a little too easily for my liking these days but I think this man could well and truly be called a legend here's a snippet it was it was tough but uh, uh, I got through it and you know began to make progress in the second and third year uh, of, of my apprenticeship well uh, they they signed me after two years yeah. at, fi- at 17 they signed me a uh, professional it was a smaller club back then so I, I, I take it it was easier to get to know what Arsenal was about was that something that you were that was part of the apprenticeship in a like it w- was to understand the the club and what it meant and who you were playing against the rivalries uh, you know the north london thing was that something that was part of it or did you just oh, naturally no, that pick was, that up no that was very part of it you know that was indoctrinated <laughs> in you you know that uh, you had to beat spurs at every possible chance and uh, you know w- w- when i joined we just won the double mm. in 71 uh, and we had you know uh, stars like Charlie George and Frank McClintock and John Radford and Ray Kennedy they were you know big players in the English game at the time Uh, so I was joining a club right at the very top just won the double the double had only been won 10 years prior to that by Spurs Uh, and hardly ever you know there's been a good few doubles since then and thankfully we've we've done them but uh, no then it was a, a special thing to do and it was a special club so our Splunk members on Patreon get to hear me talk to Liam Brady for an hour about his life, his career, 
joining Arsenal as a teenager from Dublin, making his way into the first team, becoming one of the most legendary players in our history, going to Italy, coming back from Italy, management, his time in charge of the Youth Academy. You can hear it first early next week if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. Sign up for just €5 per month at patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. That's patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. You get access to the Liam Brady interview before anybody else, as well as all the other good stuff we've got in there for you. So if you like what we do and you want to support the site, that's the way to do it. And we appreciate everybody who signed up so far. So that's coming next week. Arsblog and Liam Brady. How about that? I really enjoy chatting with him. It was... uh, Great to talk to somebody who was my my very first Arsenal hero, and I'm sure for many of you listening, he was your hero too. So if you want to check that out, you know what to do. Look, we're going to leave it there. Uh, we will cover all the uh, the preseason stuff on the website, on Arsblog, and Arsblog News over the weekend. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. I really appreciate it. James and I will be here on Monday with a post-Boreham Wood, post-World Cup final Arscast Extra. What more could you want? Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yeah, this is uh, football here, yeah, yeah. I've been living away from home for, ooh, quite a while now, it seems. I'd like to go back, of course. There is, as Dorothy says, no place like home, and uh, I'm very much a, a friend of Dorothy. I think she's got tremendous wisdom amazing engine too she can get up and down all day long great vision too the long passing but i digress i like to go back see friends and family and all those things i've missed down the years i nearly came back home this summer actually i was thinking very strongly about it but in the end you know you've got to make a decision Why would you go somewhere where Piers Morgan is? I might be round and spherical and bouncy. I ain't fucking stupid. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.